Malachi chapter 1. Just say once again uh, how much of a delight it is to know that there are other Bible-preaching, gospel-faithful churches in Austin, um, many, many more. And so this is not about the kingdom of High Point. It's not about the kingdom of Park Hills. It's about the kingdom of Christ, and we join together in our efforts to reach the lost through the gospel. And so we're so thankful to be able to partner with you all in, in a variety of ways, and I'm thankful for this opportunity to bring God's word to you this morning. Malachi chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 6 through 14. I'll pray for us. Begin our time. Malachi 1, beginning in verse 6. This is God's word. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand? says the Lord of hosts. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I'm a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Let's pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, we pray that we would not be the ones who are falling into the same trap as these Israelites who are presenting our offerings, our very lives to you in ways that are half-hearted, in ways that we feel like are tiresome. May we not give what is minimal to you because we know how great you are. And may our knowledge of your greatness as the Lord of hosts govern and guide the way we live. And may we see you now as all-glorious from your word here, And may that spur us on now, Father, to live lives in such a way that are pleasing to you and reflect how great you actually are. Oh, let it be. Let your word penetrate our hearts now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The book of Malachi opens with God 
actually reassuring his people of his love for them. We did not read the opening of this book because what we just read doesn't sound like there's much love taking place. It's pretty heavy-handed. It seems pretty harsh if we don't understand what's going on. But the book opens with God saying, I have loved you, my people. I have loved you. He asks, how have you loved us? And he goes on to explain how he has loved them in a special way. And he had to do that because of the things he was going to go, go on to address in the rest of the book, like what we're looking at this morning. Because if we just read just what we read this morning, it sounds like God is against his people here. It gives us the impression that he's not happy with them, and in all reality, he's not. But he loves them. He loves them. And so we want to keep that in context here, that though God is unhappy, he still loves them. But we still need to ask the question, why is he unhappy? You could hear it from the tone of the passage, couldn't you? He is not happy with his people. And the, uh, the answer is very clear. They are not giving him the honor that he deserves. This is all throughout the book of Malachi. This is a major theme in this prophetic book. This is the biggest problem that God has with his people. The testimony of their lives reveal they don't think God's that big of a deal. The testimony of their lives, the way in which they're living, the way in which they're worshiping demonstrates they don't see God as high and exalted, and they're not granting him the honor that is due his name. It's perhaps most evident in our passage here this morning This is a passage that has to do with worship. The temple in Israel had just been recently rebuilt. If you're familiar at all with the history of the nation of of Israel and God's dealings with them, you would remember that the people, because of their sin, were taken out of their land, their place of security, by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., 587 B.C., and were taken away from their home place and, and to a different land in exile. And they were there for 70 plus years. Well, through God's providential hand, he, he brought them back to their homeland where they were, were able to reestablish what was lost before. And one of those things was they rebuilt the temple. The temple was the place of worship. That was where they went to go and be with God and worship him. And it was particularly the place where animal sacrifices were offered. You understand, we don't do that now. Things have changed since then. We'll get into that in a little bit. But then in that time, in order for their sins to be forgiven, they had to bring these animals as a sacrifice for their sins. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so this temple is being rebuilt. It was rebuilt, and they're offering these sacrifices, and God has a problem with it. Why? Why would God have a problem with this? Because the way they are presenting these offerings is half-hearted. They're doing it in a way that demonstrates they don't really want to do it. It's wearisome. It's tiring. It's getting old. Do we have to really keep doing this? And they're revealing they don't love the Lord like they ought. Showing that in the way they're offering and what they're offering. Being lame and blind and sick animals. God is probably not most upset, however, 
with simply their lame offerings. He's upset. He's not upset merely because they have bad attitudes. But what God is so unhappy with is what those lame offerings and those bad attitudes reveal about what they think of him. That's the biggest problem. And what they think of him is, frankly, not much. And so we're going to consider from this passage what half-hearted worshipers actually believe when they're worshiping the Lord and presenting their offerings to God. And from that, I hope we can conclude a couple things about ourselves that we're not that much different in a lot of ways and that half-hearted worship is a big problem. So let's begin with what are the beliefs of these half-hearted worshipers? What do they actually believe? And there's several here. Belief number one, half-hearted worshipers believe, number one, that God is not that big of a deal. Look at verse 6 again. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests? Now, you see, he's targeting the priests here. These were the men who were set apart by God to be mediators between God and the people. They had a very important role. And one way, a key way in which they would do this is they would evaluate the offerings that the people presented for a sacrifice for their sins. Say, okay, yeah, this one looks pure and undefiled. You can use that. Uh, this one's not, not up to par. This one's not, not going to work. That's what they were supposed to do. And God is indicting these priests. Why? It says there, they are despising his name. To you, O priest, who despise my name. How are they doing that? They're despising the name of God by accepting lame and sick and polluted offerings. It's not just the priest, though, whom God has a problem with. The people are the ones who are bringing these lame offerings, and so God's unhappy with them as well. It's, it's both. God is unhappy with the priests for accepting them and unhappy with the people for bringing them in the first place. And verse 6 gives us a window into the hearts of the people, and what we find here What they're actually believing is this. God's not that big of a deal. He's not all that important. Where do we see that? See how God opens up this this passage here. This is God speaking. He opens up with just a statement of what should be. What is reality? Verse 6, a son honors his father and a servant his master. That's just the way it is. (laughs) That's just supposed to be how it is. That's how it works. Sons honor their dads. Servants fear their masters. That's supposed to be how it works. And so then he asks, what about me? Am I not your father? Am I not your master? Where's my honor? Where's my fear? The word honor here in verse 6 carries an idea of weightiness. There should be some weight in how we view God. There's weightiness to who he is, and we need, to, we need to see that. That's what honoring him is, recognizing the weight of the reality of who God is. 
And so the opposite of this would be what? Not seeing that. Thinking he's not that weighty. He's not that important. He's not that big of a deal. He doesn't even carry the same level of, of importance as our human fathers or human masters. This lack of weightiness given to the name of God is, is seen specifically in verses 8 to 9. I you to look there. Look at verses 8 to 9. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is it not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Now this governor here mentioned in verse 8 was probably a designated official over the province of, of Judah, the southern kingdom of God's people. And he was most likely, this governor was most likely put there by the Persian government because during this time the Persia had kind of charge over Israel. And so this is whom God is referring to. And the point is this. Try presenting these offerings that you're presenting to me. Try to give them to that governor. You think he's going to take them? No, he's not. He will not accept these. And I'll tell you why. Because they're lame. They're, that's minimal. So why would you even think about trying to give them to me? And the answer is this. You don't think I'm all that important. You don't, you don't think I'm more honorable than a human father. You don't even think I'm to be more feared than a human master. If you think about it, imagine if the uh, President of the United States whether you agree with his policies or not, he asks you, you, to do a favor for him. Do you think you're going to do it half-heartedly? Oh, i got a lot of stuff to do. You know, I'll get around to it when I can. It's not going to happen, is it? You're going to do it, and you're going to do it well to the best of your ability. That's what God's getting at here. Who is the President of the United States, or any human king for that matter, that is greater than me. Who is he compared to me? It's nothing. And yet you would not do that for him, what you're doing to me. And if you're not feeling an ounce of conviction over the, this passage and the numerous ways in which your life demonstrates, God's not that big of a deal then I'm not sure you're very attuned to your own heart. This should bring conviction upon our own hearts. I mean, I th you think of something as simple as just reading the Bible in the morning, right? Is that, is that so difficult? Alarm goes off, snooze. Alarm goes off against snooze. Oh, I don't feel like getting up. What are we saying? Uh, granted, there are nights, especially those of you uh, the parents with young children, they cut you some slack. I, I've been there. Uh, nights of screaming babies. But what about just on a regular basis? What are we saying when we hitting that snooze button and are not making time for the Lord? Been there? I've been there. We're saying, oh, this bed is so much more comfortable. Oh, a few minutes of sleep is way better, way more important for my day than getting into the Word 
and hearing from the God of the universe. That's essentially, in many ways, and oftentimes, what we are saying. God is not that big of a deal. That's just one of the countless examples, and a very small one for that, in which our worship of God can be very half-hearted, because we don't see him as that big of a deal. That's the first belief of these half-hearted worshipers. God is not that big of a deal. Belief number two, my sin is not that bad. Look at the second part of verse 6. It says, but you say, it's referring to the priests, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? What's God saying? You want to know how you've despised my name, O priests? You're offering these polluted animals on my altar. You're actually putting blind and lame animals on my altar. Now, a similar idea is found in the second part of verse 13. Look there. Verse 13, it says, You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows that he sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. What's he saying? This, this is God telling the priests of the kind of animals that they're bringing. What was that? Well, for one thing, some that have been taken by violence. The idea there is they're stealing some animals and bringing them as an offering for their sin. They're not even willing to give their own animal. They're taking someone else's. And ones that are sick and lame, and the priests are actually accepting it. Verse 8 is actually implying as well that this evil, they don't see it as that. They don't see it as evil. thought it was fine, justifying this sin. You know, hey, at least I'm bringing an animal. Like, at least I'm doing something here. Now, why is it evil to bring animals that are lame or blind or sick? The superficial answer is, well, God told them not to do that. And so they're disobeying. And that would be true. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 21, gives this, give this command. If there's any animal that has any blemish, or if it is lame or blind, or has any serious blemish, whatever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. So God says, don't do it, therefore you shouldn't. That's how we often live our Christian lives, which is better than disobeying. But God is not that shallow. It's not just simply do it because I said so, like the way I parent often. Just do it because I said so. God has a reason, a deep reason for why he does these things. When we really stop to consider why it's so evil, the reason is this. They're believing this is not all that bad. I mean, it's fine. I, I know God said do this, but, you know, this form of disobedience is it's not that bad. It's not that big of a deal. There's still even more going on here than just the minimizing of this particular evil by breaking God's law and presenting an impure offering. The fact that they are willing to present such an offering reveals what they believe about their sin in general. 
Think about what these offerings were for. Why were they supposed to be pure and unblemished? It's because the, the people were pure, impure, and blemished, and sinful, and they needed a pure substitute, right? That's what it represented. And so, so that their impurity could be transferred to the, the animal itself, and the, the purity of the animal could be transferred to them, this kind of exchange that's supposed to symbolically take place. And if so, they're, if they're willing to bring these impure animals for sacrifices, what does that reveal about how they view themselves? I'm not that bad. I'm not that big of a sinner. I'm not so evil. And so this blind goat will do. They're minimizing the evil of their sin. One of the worst things we can do is not simply justify our sin and say what I did was not wrong. That's, that's bad. We shouldn't do that. But I've found more often we're willing to say, yes, what I did was sin. Yes, I shouldn't have gotten angry. Yes, I shouldn't have been so impatient. Yes, I shouldn't be anxious. We admit it. Why don't we really repent of it? Why isn't there true change? One reason is though we admit it's sin, we minimize it. Though we admit that it is actual sin against God and disobedience to him, it's not that big of a deal. If you want to see true change in your life, one thing that needs to be there is not just admitting and owning up to your sin, but seeing how bad it actually is. Because here's the reality. The effort that you put forth in fighting against your sin is going to correspond to how bad you see it is. Isn't that true? And so if it's not that big of a deal, you're not going to put that much effort forward to make all-out war on it. But if you see it as high treason against the God of the universe, don't you think you're going you're to pull out all your ammo? You're going to do whatever you can to overcome this thing and fight against it? And at that point your harsh comment back to your spouse, your comparison with other people and jealousy and envy of what they have and how they are, your glance at a woman or a man in lustful intent is not so small. When you see it for what it is, you're not going to make it seem like it's a little thing. You're going to then make all-out war on it. Not only this, this relates more to our passage, how evil you see your sin to be corresponds to how badly you see your need for a deliverer from that sin, a savior. The Israelites were presenting these weak substitutes because their sin wasn't that big of a deal. And when we consider the substitute the rescuer, the deliverer, the savior that God sent for sinners like us, that should wake us up to the reality of how awful and evil and wicked our sin actually is. When it took the death of the Son of God to pay for our sins, doesn't that reveal how bad we are? <laughs> this, this is not something that many Christians think. It reveals 
how, how valuable we are. Like, oh, that God would do that. That means we, we must be that awesome. Uh, no, 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 no. It's the exact opposite. The fact that it took the death of the Son of God to make payment for our sin and to give, give us forgiveness and, and right relationship with him reveals, whoa, I am messed up. I am messed up. Praise be to God that he still loves me even though I'm a sinner and was, was willing to send his son in my place. And so the second belief of these half-hearted worshipers is my, my sin isn't that bad. Belief number three is this. Half-hearted worship is at least better than no worship at all. Look at verse 10. This is God speaking. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. What is God saying? He's saying, do you, do you actually believe that it's better for you to present these kinds of offerings to me than it is for you not to present them at all? Because it's not. I mean, I would rather, God is saying, I would rather the doors to the temple, that's the doors being referenced in verse 10, I would rather the doors to the temple be shut than for you to continue in this kind of half-hearted worship. Here's how one person put it. A closed temple, however terrible this may be, is preferable to the perpetuating of worthless worship. In other words, no worship is better than half-hearted worship. No worship is not good, but half-hearted worship is worse. Worship that is presented as true worship before God when our hearts are far from the action. Doesn't that make sense? I mean, if, applying it to our day, if there are churches in this city where sin is being minimized and worship is fake and it's not based on God's word and the, the way that they function as a church reveals that they just don't think God is that big of a deal, don't you think it would be better if that church would cease to exist? Yeah. Contrary to what Israel believed, half-hearted worship is no better than no worship at all. Belief number four. Belief number four. Wholehearted worship is a burden. Look at verse 12. You profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weirdness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. So you snort at it. Snort at what? They are snorting really looking at, looking upon with contempt what God has commanded to, of them. Bring pure offerings. Oh, I don't want to do that. You snort at it. Why? They already gave their reason. It's wearisome. It's, weary, it's tiring. It's wearisome to bring pure offerings to the table again and again and again. In other words, God's requirement of wholehearted worship is a burden to them. You there? You ever been there? Feel overwhelmed? Just want to kick back, take it easy sometimes, give the bare minimum when it comes to church attendance? 
church involvement, discipleship, evangelism, sharing the gospel, Bible reading, prayer, service, giving, family worship, leading your family as dads, it's hard work, fighting sin, loving people, oh, how much easier it is to just avoid people who are hard to love. Been there? It's likely that there are even members of this church, as there are in mine, in many other churches, who have developed a pattern of engaging in the life of the church, the body, at the bare minimum. Maybe the extent of your involvement is shown up on Sundays. You don't really have any close relationships. You're just happy, you know, hearing the word preach, going back to your own agenda for your life that you've set up. It's nice and comfortable. Maybe others of you have built relationships. You've gotten to know people. But you do a masterful job of keeping people at an arm's length so that they can't really get to know who you are because, boy, oh, boy, that would be scary if they really knew what was going on the inside. So I'm put on this front. You've got close relationships. It's good enough. I don't want them to see anything that's ugly. We need each other. We need each other to fight sin. We don't believe the lie that you're okay like this. You, you need one another to help each other to fight sin and love Jesus more. Open up to a trusted church member who's not going to be spilling the beans all over the place, but who loves you and is wise enough to apply God's word to whatever's going on in your life and in your heart. It is very tempting to believe that wholehearted worship is a burden. It's much easier to present offerings that are lame and blind. Why? Why is it so much easier? Because we love comfort and convenience. We have debilitating fears of vulnerability that we're not fighting with the truth of the gospel and rooting our identity in who we are in Christ, but rather we're rooting our identity in what does that person think of me? We, we, it's so much easier to, to do half-hearted worship because the agenda that I've set for my life is far easier than having to readjust it for others or even for God. This passage should be convicting for all of us. But... I don't know if, you, as you saw it, as we read through it, there's much hope for half-hearted worshipers like you and I. There are two places in this passage where God declares that he will see to it that he is worshipped. He's going to make sure I will be worshipped. And we're going to see why that's good news for us. God spends a lot of time in this passage expressing his displeasure in the half-hearted worship of his people. And then he announces that, that he's not going to accept their offerings, the, the people of Israel's offerings anymore. Look at the second part of verse 10. The second part of verse 10 um, says, I, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. And so at this point, it appears that the main reason why God rejects their offerings is because of their half-hearted worship in them. And that's true. But it's only partially true because verse 11 provides the fuller reason why he won't accept their offerings. And it's this. He's going to go elsewhere to get these offerings. Not just in this location with the people of Israel. He's going to go outside. Look at verse 11. 
from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the what? Nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. we got to get this. To the average Jew during this time, this was crazy talk. The language that he's using here, like, what, what are you talking about? Did you see what he's saying he's going to do? Reject your lame offerings, Israel. I'm going to receive pure offerings from people in every single nation. This is radical talk here. And we know that God is talking about people from every nation because of the language he uses in verse um, 11. He says, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. This is not talking about time. Like, for a day, my name will be great among the nations. This is talking about every place where the sun touches, my name's going to be seen as great. Because it's not being seen as great here right now in the nation of Israel. I'm not sure how we realize, if we realize how outrageous this would have sounded to the people of Israel. Like, what do you mean you're going to go to the nations and they're going to present offerings to you? What? And then they're going to be lighting this incense to you? This is stuff that only happened in the temple, in Jerusalem. Are all the nations going to come here? There's only one temple. How is this even going to work? What are you doing, God? I thought we were your people. I thought we were your covenant people. We're the only ones who are supposed to do this. You're going to the nations? It would have been total crazy talk in their minds. He repeats himself, just in case they missed it. Look at the end of verse 14, the last sentence of our passage. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Does that connect back to something? Am I not a father? Where's my honor? My name will be great among the nations. Am I not a master? Where's my fear? My name will be feared among the nations. God's going to see to it that he's worshipped. Why? Because he is a great king. I've said it plenty times in this service. He is a great king, and therefore he deserves worship, pure worship. This here is one of the clearest predictions, perhaps, in all the Old Testament of Gentile inclusion into the people of God. And this is good news for us because I imagine if I took a raise of hands here, how many Jews are here? Maybe just a few of you. I've done this in my congregation. We have one family. They raise their hand very faithfully. Rest. Gentiles. You understand when the Bible talks about the nations, it's talking about us. It's talking about America and other nations. God's going to make his name great among people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. How's he going to do this? Here's the irony. The people of Israel were presenting these impure offerings to God, and in doing so, they were not seeing God's name as great. And God says, this is not going to happen. I'm, 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 gonna, I'm going to be worshipped. I don't need your worship now. I'm going to be worshipped. My name will be great among the nations. And here's how my name is going to be great among the nations. I am going to present the offering. I am going to present the pure offering on behalf 
of all those who would trust that offering alone as their only hope for forgiveness and right relationship with me. And when I present that offering on their behalf, their sins will be forgiven. And when I present that offering on their behalf, they'll be drawn to me through that offering. When they behold it, they will see the greatness of my name. Do we know what this pure offering that God the Father presented? Let me be grammatically correct here. Do we know who this pure offering is that God presented for us, for sinners like us among the nations? It's Jesus Christ himself. Jesus says in John 12, when I am lifted up from the earth, it's referring to his cross work, lifted up. When I, when I die upon the cross, when I am sacrificed, when that offering happens, when I offer myself, when I am lifted up from the earth, he says, I will draw all men to myself. All kinds of men. That's the context. The idea here is not just Jews, not just people from Israel, but people from all over the map are going to be drawn to me. You realize we're a reflection of that? God gives the offering. He draws the people to himself by the offering and purifies those people by that offering. All who would place their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ are then connected to him. And what takes place? When you, when you repent of your sins, let me encourage you, if you, if you have not repented of your sins, if you've not seen your sin for what it is, it's a big deal. And if you've not seen God for who he is, he's a big deal. When you put those two things together, that's a big problem for us because we deserve to be punished for our sins. It starts to make sense why an eternity in hell based on how bad our sin is and how great God is. But when then we start to see what he offered for us in Jesus Christ, we see that was a big deal. So I would, I would implore you, I would... I would uh, encourage you, trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone as your only hope. He lived the perfect life for sinners. He was the perfect offering because we, we stink at life. <laughs> we sin all the time, and we need someone to, to be that for us. And he took the punishment that we deserved by dying on the cross for our sins, and he rose again showing he conquered sin and death in our place. Trust in that alone. And when you do, you're connected to Christ so that now your life becomes an offering. The way you live is a sacrifice to God. Isn't that what we read in Romans 12, verse 1? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your rational service or spiritual worship. This doesn't sound like half-hearted worship. This is saying that when we are united to the one true sacrifice of Christ by faith, then we, are be we become living sacrifices. Our very lives are sacrifices to God. And when we consider the mercies of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and his sacrifice in our place, th then we start to believe, yeah, God is a big deal. And my sins are really that bad, but God's grace is way bigger than my sin. And half-hearted worship, therefore, makes no sense in light of what God has accomplished for me in Christ. We get God. 
We get to behold the greatness of God. And so as we consider our tendency towards half-hearted worship, let us be reminded of what God did to draw us to himself through his son. And then may we see once again the joy that comes in a wholehearted worship to this great king. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would remind us again, cause us to see the mercies that you have lavished upon us in Christ and the offering that you gave to us through Jesus. We thank you for that once and for all sacrifice of Christ so that we don't have to be presenting these animals on a daily basis. Oh God, help us to, to see this sacrifice of Christ. Cause us to see the greatness of it and may that remind us of how great you are, how bad our sin is, but how much you still love us. So let us root our identity there and cause us to see our hope in that alone. And may that compel us then to be living lives of sacrifice for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.